Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Zach Spillman. I'm going to be teaching your class today, and uh, welcome to Training Day. And uh, this is The Bible Said What? Uh, Basically, we're going to be looking today at strange, offensive, or confusing scriptures from the Old Testament. And so uh, I'm going to be leading this off. And so um, does everybody got, got a copy of our notes so far? Everybody got a copy? Now, don't be intimidated. Our notes are a little bit thick, but... Um, I know that just in case uh, we don't make it through everything, you got a copy of the notes uh, so that way we can just have a nice leisurely pace and going through the information and you'll have stuff even if we don't get it covered. And uh, something I just want to let you know, this is my very first time to teach a class, so I'm kind of learning as you're learning too. So don't be afraid to raise your hand and ask questions um, at any time. I'm I'm super happy to do that and I think we'll actually learn a little bit better through a little dialogue rather than this being like a college lecture or anything like that so um, anyway I just wanted to say thank you very much for coming in today and uh, I'll open us with a word of prayer if that's all right Heavenly Father, I just thank you, God, for today. I uh, thank you, Lord, for the people that have shown interest in wanting to study your word. I thank you, God, that you've given us your word and that you want to teach us what you're like. You want to show the world what you're like. And uh, I just pray, Father, that you bless our time together. Uh, I pray that you would help me, Lord, uh, to just convey your word faithfully. And I pray, Lord, that you would just open up all of our hearts to have a good time and learn a little bit more about you today. Amen. Yeah, come on in, everybody. Uh, I've got notes over here on the side. And anybody that registered on the website, we've got um, name tags and stickers and stuff like that. And so um, I just wanted to start uh, today just kind of letting you know a little bit about me. Uh, My name is Zach Spillman. Um, I'm a a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. So I'm in my fourth year uh, working on a a THM, which is a a Master of Theology. Um, I'm working on an emphasis in cross-cultural ministry. Uh, My wife and I, Allie, uh, we've been married about five years, and we'd like to go on the mission field one day. Uh, in the meantime, for fun, here at Watermark, I'm in the equipping team and I'm on the apologetics team. So whenever you send us an email and have questions, I'm one of the folks that gets to answer your questions. And uh, that's one of the reasons why this class exists uh, is because, um, I guess a couple of months ago, we got a very, very good, long um, I'd say more of a comment than it was a question. And uh, basically, uh, a gentleman gave us 27 points about why he does not believe God exists. And um, so we uh, invited him to, to, lunch, to a coffee, and I, I basically was one of the guys that, that wrote a response. Uh, it took a while because he had a lot of great questions. And so some of the lecture today is kind of a response to that because... I know that there are people out there today that have a lot of questions from the Old Testament. And, you know, you open your Bible and you read and you're like, wow, like slavery and talking animals and, you know, we don't eat pork. What's the deal with all that? So uh, today I'm going to cover five questions. My goal, if if you guys like what you get, then you never know. Maybe we do another training day. Uh, I might want to do one of these on the New Testament. So, um Anyway, today we're going to look at five big questions. First, did a donkey really talk? Uh, second, what, what in the world is the deal? Does God condone slavery? Three, um, does, did God really order the genocide and murder of an entire race of people? Um, four, what's the deal with polygamy? Does God allow polygamy? And then five, 
well, what's the deal with all these dirty animals? Why can't I eat my pork? Why, what's the deal with uh, dietary laws? So I'm going to try to work my way through. Again, you can always raise your hands, ask questions, and I'm just going to kind of work, work through, and uh, we'll uh, get where we get, okay? Uh, and uh, I'll make sure and we try to have a break in a little bit. So, so um, the... There's an important thing. Why in the world is interpreting and understanding the Old Testament important? The reason why is because there are consequences to the way that we think, particularly how we think about God. I just did a Google search on, uh, excuse me, I did a Google search here on why I don't believe in God, and you get 178 million replies. On Google. If you do the same thing on God is evil from Google, you get 551 million responses. And so there are people out there that have very strong opinions about God. And so the way that, that we understand the Bible is going to affect how we are, our, our opinion on what God is like. And one very notable person is Richard Dawkins, and I wanted to play you a clip that he said. Uh, this is from 2006. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. This is Richard Dawkins. Uh, if you may be familiar, Richard Dawkins, about five years ago, he wrote a, a really fairly famous book called The God Delusion. And uh, in his book, he outlines reasons why he believes it is illogical and immoral for the concept that God could exist. And uh, he's become a pretty famous author. Um, he's also really well known uh, in the evolutionary debate. And so, as you can see, people are profoundly influenced by, their, by the Bible and by their perceptions of God. And so, this is why it's really important that as we look through the Old Testament, we need to be really careful about how we interpret Scripture and, and what we see from the Old Testament, how it affects how we think. And so... Uh, people are often uh, affected by their presumptions of God, and so they often use that to, they breathe that into how they read the Old Testament. So the assumptions that you make about God, maybe from your upbringing or from your denominational background or from your experiences in life and your experiences with Christians, it affects how you read the rest of the Bible. People tend to reinforce their own beliefs based off of their own opinions that they already have. And really, uh, you know, there's no, no such thing as anyone that's bias-free. We, we need to, to have these opinions. It helps us make sense of the world. It's our, our world view. Um, and in fact, they're having another class today about that on, uh, with Jonathan Pocluda and, and Bobby Crotty on world view. Now, there's many atheists today, 
postmodernists and liberal Christians that refuse to believe in God, or they're going to refuse parts of the Bible because of their own personal difficulties and moral attitudes toward God in the Old Testament. Um, in fact, some have gone so far as to believe that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are actually two different deities. Um, this is a this is a an ancient belief actually from the second century called Marcionism, basically saying, you know, you know what what do you do when in the New Testament, you know, Jesus says that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, that that we should not judge others um, so that they won't judge us, and yet we read in the Old Testament that God says that. Of the Canaanites, don't show them any mercy. Kill their men, their women, their children, and their animals and take their cities. You know, some people think that that divide is so significant, it can't even be the same God. And uh, I think a a part of what we're going to look at today is realize that really it is the same God. Um, It's just there's some things you have to understand before, you know, when you read these texts so that you can have a, a whole picture of what God is like instead of just a part of the picture of what God is like. So... It's some pretty big, some pretty big stuff that we're dealing with. Um, so the first question that we're going to look at today is: Did a donkey really talk? You know. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Numbers 22, and uh, in Numbers 22 it says this: um, But God was angry because he was going. It's talking about Balaam, uh, a prophet, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw... With the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or to the left. And so, this raises the question, did a donkey really talk? See, the second half says this, When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you had ridden all of, all of your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. So, this is really an interesting, very unusual text from the Old Testament where we have a donkey talk. And in the 21st century, we think, well... This is a fable, you know. I mean, we live in a modern age. Like, surely we're not going to have talking animals. And so uh, we're going to look at at this text a little bit. There's a couple of helpful things we can look at from the story that's going to help us to kind of understand it a little bit. Uh, First, Balaam uh, was a Canaanite prophet. 
Um, the word that's used in Hebrew in Joshua 13.22, uh, it's the same word for a diviner or a, a fortune teller. This is someone that you pay money to and they're going to give, they're going to tell you your fortune or they're going to, they're going to look into the future. And so, uh, the same refer, uh, word also refers to a, a non-Israelite oracle or a fortune teller, um, and they were asked to curse Israel. Um, in the na- ancient Near East, this is like the Middle East, um, blessings and curses were taken very, very seriously, um, especially from people that were in close connection to the gods or to God. Um, this is from a, a commentary, uh, the International Critical Commentary on the Bible from Numbers. Um, people in the ancient Near East believed that the gods were involved in the daily lives of people, um, especially prophets, seers, or oracles. And so it would make sense that they're going to go to Balaam, this prophet guy. Um, the, earlier in the text it says they pay him the fee for the... You can come on in. If you, uh, if you need a couple extra seats, we can always make room for you. But uh, it's very, very common to uh, for people to come to see seers uh, or prophets uh, in the uh, Old Testament. And they believed that the prophet or the seer had authority as a mediator with God. And so uh, that's why they're going to see Balaam, because the king uh, is worried. Uh, and so they needed uh, Balaam's word to curse um, Israel. And uh, the interesting thing is we get to the end of the verse, in verse 35 and 38, it says that Balaam equivalates what the donkey said and the angel to that of God. And so it seems from Balaam's perspective that, uh, that, the, that the words that the donkey spoke were actually from God. So this raises the question... Yes? What's, what's that acronym A&E stand for? Uh, Ancient Near East. Yeah, any time that you'll see for the rest of today, if you see ancient Near East, um, that's uh, A&E, that's what it stands for. So, And be, feel free to chime in at any time, guys. Y'all are doing great. Uh, so this raises the question, how did the donkey speak? Uh, this is only one of two times uh, in the Old Testament that we see an angel or a, we see an animal talking in the Old Testament. Can anybody in here think of the only other time where we see a talking animal in the Old Testament? Serpent. Yeah, Genesis three. In Genesis three, uh, we see a serpent talking with Eve, and at that point, um, the important thing to r- realize is that. The serpent is able to speak because of the supernatural influence of another being. In that case, it's probably Satan. So here it says, the text says that the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. So we see that that these aren't just normal animals or normal pets that are talking on their own. But in Genesis 3, it's because of Satan that the serpent is able to speak. And here, in Numbers 22, the donkey is able to speak because the Lord opened its mouth. Uh, So it seems here that, that from the text at least, that God has miraculously made this happen. And also from the perspective of Balaam. Um, This is not necessarily uncommon also in ancient Near East folklore. Um, We have the the uh, fables of Aesop, we see that with talking animals. We see that happening from Greek literature. Um, we also have the Egyptian tale of two brothers. Uh, it includes a talking cow, 
The Egyptian tale of the shipwrecked sailor uh, has a serpent that gives a prof, uh, prophetic uh, word to a, a sailor that helps him to return to his home. And then in Sumerian and Babylonian literature, um, we have what you call contest literatures where animals will actually debate uh, with each other and they'll talk about um, you know, some philosophical or theological truth um, and they'll actually debate with each other. So we kind of already see that there's a... Um, uh, a wide usage of talking animals as a literary genre throughout the ancient Near East at this time period. So it's not necessarily, from a literary point of view, it's not necessarily unusual that in the Bible here we have um, uh, a talking animal. Wouldn't that, though, diminish what we're reading in the Scripture? Well, the interesting... It gives an atheist a, you know, look at this, it's a fable. Well, actually, that's a great point. And that's what a lot of people do think. We actually have three options. One of it is that it is a myth or a fable. Or perhaps that it's um, a mythical element that's been embedded in the story. But the interesting thing here is that this is going one step farther. And, and in the text, it's saying that the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And so what's interesting there is that this is not just um, necessarily just a, a story story, but this is actually claiming that it's God that is influencing the conversation, which is kind of a whole th- interesting thing in itself. You know, that's a pretty bold claim to make. Um, But you bring up an excellent point. Um, There's also a number of reasons why, you know, uh, people may be skeptical. For example, Balaam's name, uh, the word Balaam uh, in Hebrew, it comes from the Hebrew root Bala, which uh, means destroyer or one who consumes. And so a lot of times people will think, well, really, Balaam's name's not really a name. It's more just a, a generic description, sort of like evil one. And so it kind of, instead of it being like a real person's title, it might just be kind of a, a descriptive name for Balaam as a literary title, uh, like as a foil to the story. Um, some, And then also, you know, let's face it, this thing's got talking donkeys, it's got an angel, it's got prophetic utterance. And so these supernatural elements uh, and the fact that you bring up that, you know, hey, it's also got talking animals like in other places in, in the ancient Near East, you know, it probably isn't the real deal. But the problem is here is that the story is framed in a historical context in the Bible. You see, um, if you look at the if you look at where the story happens in in Numbers in Numbers twenty one, the story is about uh, Israel's invasion of uh, the Canaanite some of the Canaanite peoples and particularly the Midianites. So chapter twenty one that comes before it is a historical account of some of their battles. What's interesting, the chapter that follows in twenty five is a genealogical chronological uh, is a uh, chronological. Um, uh, record of all of the census of Egypt. And then in chapter 31 that follows as well, we have the historical account of them actually going in and destroying Midian as a result of this story. So what, what's interesting is that if this is a fable, it's the text that comes before is a historical narrative. The text that comes afterward is a census historical legal uh, as a legal record, and then the chapter that comes six chapters afterward is also a historical event. So, if this is a fable, it's been a fable that's been kind of glued in in between uh, historical accounts. So that kind of kind of makes us lean toward that maybe this really 
did happen, just from a literary point of view. Um, second, here's another point. Various uh, biblical texts and authors contend that the story is true. As you can see, there are several uh, references that's going to, to refer back to this story as a historical event. For example, Peter, uh, in Second Peter 2.15, uh, uh, addresses this story as a, as, an, as a true event. Jude... Jesus, even uh, the Jewish historian from the first century, Josephus, writes in Antiquities. He refers back to this story as a historical event. Um, the 11th century medieval um, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yishaki, he's one of the most famous um, Israeli rabbis um, from the, from in the history of the Pentateuch um, is also assumed that this story is true. And then even John Calvin from the 16th century assumed that the story is true. So that's interesting that just from Jewish history, even the Jewish people consider this to be a historical event, which is very kind of interesting as well, adds a little bit of weight. A second contention then is like, well... You know, even if it's maybe not necessarily um, a myth or a, a myth that's put into the story, maybe what happened is Balaam saw a vision. You know, Balaam's a prophet, right? So prophets often have dreams and strange supernatural visions and stuff like that. So maybe he just had a vision that that the donkey talked and the donkey, donkey really didn't talk. Um, one of the ancient uh, uh, scholars, Myomedes, uh, uh, talked about that in Moray uh, Nebuchim. Uh, he argues for this that Balaam also saw a vision. Um, unfortunately, the problem with this view is that there's nothing in the text that points us in that direction. Typically in the Old Testament, whenever you have uh, a prophetic utterance, there's typically going to be a trigger word. For example, um, you're going to see something like, the Lord said to, or the Lord appeared to, the word of the Lord came to. Also, um, syntactically, for those who may have a little bit of Hebrew, they're actually get, there's a little grammatical trigger that's going to show whenever there's a, a, a change in author and there's going to be a change um, in the actual, um, like the, the text itself, like that someone else is speaking. Then we don't necessarily see any of those trigger words here. We don't see, you know, we don't see, oh, the Lord, the vision of the Lord came to Balaam, or the word of the Lord came to Balaam. We don't see any of those triggers um, that would make us think that perhaps that Balaam was having a vision here. And uh, so. The third possibility is that maybe that this is a unique, miraculous event that actually happened from God. Like, a, like a, uh, I mentioned before, the context uh, previously mentioned that God was speaking to Balaam. Uh, it actually, the text also says that um, Balaam anticipated speaking to and hearing from the Lord. We see that from just a few verses before this part of the story. Um, we also see three times that the angel of the Lord appeared to the donkey. And then we see here the word, uh, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and that the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and that Balaam, in response, he takes the message seriously and obeys the command um, of the Lord that comes through the donkey. So, you know, it's interesting. It seems from Balaam's perspective, at least, that he assumes that this is from God. Uh, The interesting thing, too, is the phrase here, the Lord opened his mouth. The actual Hebrew phrase is used three different places to refer to God sovereignly speaking in a verbal prophetic way to a prophet. We see it in Ezekiel and Psalms. Uh, In the Psalms reference is actually David uh, talking about receiving uh, prophetic inspiration from God. 
And then the phrase, the Lord opened his eyes, is pretty much the same thing. We see it in Psalms, Numbers, and Second Kings. And that refers to God giving you like a, either like a, a vision or God giving you um, a, like a, a dream-like insight into his character or to maybe even a, a predictive future event. So the thing is, is from the actual um, text itself, it seems like there's some sort of prophetic thing that's happening here with the donkey. Um, so we can see from the text itself that the text, the, the Hebrew text in the, the actual narrative itself is kind of pointing toward that this is a miraculous event between the angels, the talking donkey, and then the phrases the, the Lord spoke to, and then the, the, um, the Lord opened his eyes. And then the fact that, you know, Jesus affirmed uh, something else that, that Jesus even know, uh, mentioned in the, in the story when uh, he has the, the uh, triumph, triumphant procession into, into uh, Jerusalem. The, everybody's saying, blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees say, why in the world are you letting these people worship you? And, he, and Jesus' response is saying, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. And so what that shows us is that even Christ said that if, if people would not worship him, that nature has the ability to praise God. And so even from Christ's perspective here in Luke, it's not necessarily impossible for God to miraculously use either nature or animals to, in a prophetic way, even though, like we saw earlier, it's, it only happens two times in the Old Testament. So it is, you know... If you if you're if you're on the farm this summer and and you know one of your cows start talking to you, you might want to you know treat that as as maybe not necessarily from the Lord. And if it does, you might want to bring your Bible and just kind of compare notes a little bit. So, like I said, this is kind of a an unusual story, but from the text itself, it appears that um, that. Um, you know, that this is a supernatural event that happens. Um, and so what does this teach us, touch, teach us about God? Uh, it shows that God is sovereign. You know what? If God can make a donkey speak, that's pretty amazing, right? I mean, he, if he can, he can use his prophetic power to speak through uh, a donkey, that's pretty amazing. Um, it shows that God controls nature. It shows that nothing is impossible with God. It shows us that God is able to use uh, ordinary things or ordinary people in uncommon ways to direct and teach us. It shows that prophets can only speak what God tells them. This is something that Balaam says very, very often through this chapter and the three chapters that follows. He says, I cannot curse Israel because I can only say what the Lord God has spoken to me. Um, And then it shows that God cares for and protects his people. God was willing to have a donkey speak to this prophet so that he wouldn't curse Israel and Israel would be be hurt through that curse. so how should we live in light of this verse? If this is true, if we accept this is true, how should we be different people as a result of this strange story? Uh, one is that we can take confidence in knowing that nothing is impossible with God. It's strange. It's a little awkward. It's a little bit of a neat story. But, you know, we can actually take confidence in knowing that God can do anything He wants to do. Um, and we could also be mindful that the Lord uh, may reveal things to us through unusual ways. You know, maybe a, a friend or a neighbor says something that really kind of speaks to your heart. Or, you know, si- your situations in life seem to be kind of pointing you towards something. You realize that sometimes the Lord can speak to us in unusual ways, but especially through regular means, which is His Word. Because we know that the Scripture tells us that 
The Word of God is unchanging. The Word of God is something that is safe and something we can depend on. So... Um, that's kind of the, uh, I, I would say, a, a defense for the speaking of the animal. I think, you, you know, you can raise some, some interesting points about how, you know, is this really a historical event? But as we see from the text itself and from the, the literary and grammatical features inside of the story, at least it seems like it's a true event. So, do you have any questions? Can I chase a rabbit trail just for a second? Sure. Um, Go ahead. There was... I don't have any problem with the donkey talking. I mean, you know, the rocks cry out and the serpents talk, you know, and all that. You know, one of the things that's confusing me about this story, um, if you go to Numbers, you know, in the... So, 20, verse 22, if you go back two verses... Uh-huh. To verse 20, you know, because... 22-20? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, Numbers 22, verse 20. You know, God was... Um, you know, Balaam was was debating back and forth whether to go or not. Sure. Right? And in verse 20 it says, That night God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So verse 21, Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes. Verse 22, But God was very angry when he went. And what confuses me about that is verse 20, he says, God says, Okay, go with them. And then verse 22, God was angry when he went. Sure. That's an excellent you know, question. What's, so, what's the deal? It seems like there's a, a conflict there, right? Everybody else kind of see that with 20 and 21? He says, go ahead and go, but yet he's angry when he does go. That's a very good insight. Um, there's often a difference. Uh, actually, we're going to talk about this in the next question. So this is excellent segue. Um, there's a difference in the Old Testament between what you call prescriptive commands and permissive commands. Um, a lot of times in the Old Testament, when you get a command from God, there's a difference between something that God is firmly saying, like the Ten Commandments, for example, or if God gives a command for someone to go and do something. It, it's something that God says, this is not an option. You obey or you disobey. That's a prescriptive command. That's, that's something that God commands that we're expected to follow. There, but there's also permissive commands, which this is something that God does not necessarily want, but because He is going to allow us creaturely freedom, uh, He's going to allow us free will, He is going to allow us to go despite it being not quite His, his best choice for us. So what I think is happening here is that He's saying, yes, go to Balaam. Uh, he's saying, you know, you can go, uh, but he's, he's framing it. He's saying, but if you do go, you can only speak what I tell you. You see, God doesn't really want him to go in the first place. He doesn't want him to be tempted. Here's, here, here's what I'm thinking. Because I bet you God in his foreknowledge knows what's going to happen in, in chapter 24. He knows that Balaam's going to say, okay, I can't curse you. So instead what you do is you need to bring out a bunch of these Moabite, Midianite women and have them seduce Israel and then God will, himself will punish uh, the women or punish uh, Israel for their sexual sin. And so I think because God foreknew what what Balaam was going to do to get, to circumvent his command, I think he permissively allowed him to go. And so, like I said, I think that's an, an example here of a permissive command instead of a, a prescriptive command. Um, that is that is reading into the text a little bit. So you can you can understand that that you know from the text we actually the text does not say why the Lord is angry in 22. But that my best guess is it's one of those foreknowledge and a, a per, permissive command there. Any other questions? That's a very good question. Very good question. 
Okay, okay. Well, thanks for holding on with me. Not question number two, and we're going to have a break after this question. Does God allow slavery? Does God allow slavery? In our text, we, I'm going to use two different texts here. Um, Exodus 21, 20 through 21 says, If a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. And then a second text in Leviticus 25, 44-46 says, um, As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then, too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners, those are people that, um, like resident aliens, um, who live as aliens among you, that you may gain acquisition. And out of their families who are with you, whom they have produced in your land, they also may become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive them as a possession, and you may use them as permanent slaves." But in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. Well, so basically um, what it seems that this scripture is saying is that God allows people to have slaves. And this is pretty big, right? You know, we don't want to think that God Almighty would allow people to enslave one another. And so uh, there's a couple of helpful things that might be able to help us um, understand uh, what these texts are saying. Because Exodus right here, this is written by Moses. um, And then this Levitical law, this is a legal section of the Bible. So this is is actually God speaking as a legal command, uh, legally allowing slavery. Um, As I said before with your question, there's something we need to understand here is that there's a difference between God commanding something uh, as a prescriptive command and then God commanding something, permitting something, uh, which is a permissive regulation. So, like I said, there's a, a difference between, you know, go to Los Angeles, thus says the Lord, versus you may, da 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 da. There's a difference between God directly commanding something which must be obeyed in something that he allows. Um, the Bible is something else that we have to understand is the Bible is made up of many different genres. We have a, cre- a creation genre. We have a legal genre, which is law. We have narrative genres. We have poetry, prophecy, and apocalypse. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why a lot of people may misinterpret the Old Testament is that if you're going to read the Old Testament and the New Testament accurately, you need to know what genre you're reading um, as you do it. Because, you know, if you just take one verse and read it without looking at the context and then the chapter and then even knowing what genre you're in, then you're going to interpret it in different ways. And that's a lot of times why people may have some difficulties with the Old Testament is you got to look at what kind of genre you have, you know. Just because the Bible, for example... Um, here with uh, narrative literature, you know, a lot of times we'll read a story and something just horrendously awful will happen. But it's Moses just describing an event. It's saying, you know, somebody did this. It's there, There's a difference between, or for example, if you have law, you know, there's a difference between something awful being recorded as a historical event versus that same event being described as a legal mandate. And so that's why it's important when you read the Bible, you have to understand what genres you're working with. Now...
The thing that will help us here is that we're in a legal section. Um, the end, end half of Exodus and then Leviticus is going to be a legal section. Um, this is basically God's way of saying, hey, if you're going to be my covenant people, and if I'm going to live with you in the tabernacle, then these are the kind of things that you need to do in order for, for you to be my pe- people and me to be your God. Um, in literature, this is, these are very similar to uh, ancient Near East uh, legal contracts, basically. This is like a, a treaty. Um, and so when we read uh, things in Exodus and Leviticus, it's like a treaty. Um, and so right here, permissive regulations are often things that God allows man to freely do. Um, and so in general, the issue of slavery falls in the legal section. It, fo- it follows into a part of Leviticus and Exodus that's regarding legal transactions or, or business transactions. Again, because from this perspective, slavery is a, is, a business, um, is a business transaction. So it's falling in the genre of, of legal law and following into the sub-genre of, of business practices. Um, and again, this is something where God is allowing man to freely decide how to act but it's going to be governed by a set of principles. This is a lot of times when, when you read Proverbs, you may not necessarily see tons of commands, but you see, you see when you read the Proverbs, this is the kind of person, you may, I may not have a, 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 a direct command in this situation, but this is the kind of person you need to be when you do make decisions freely. Um, and so uh, I think that slavery is going to fall under that genre. Um, and like I said, you know, we could consider this as offensive, you know? But you also have to understand that slavery is a very, 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 very common practice in the ancient Near East. I mean, pretty much every culture in the ancient Near East is going to have some form of slavery. And so this is a very common worldwide practice. And in fact, uh, if you look at the dates for abolishing slavery, one of the very first cultures in the ancient Near East to uh, abolish slavery is the Persian Empire in 550 B.C., After that, we get Iceland in the 12th century. We get Japan in the the beginning of the 13th century. Croatia, France doesn't abolish slavery until 1315. England until 1833. The United States in 1865. And look at this. The United Nations did not abolish slavery until 1948. And then Israel, 1952. The interesting thing about Israel is that um, Israel did not become a legal nation until 1948. So this is Israel as an organized nation, as a former British Commonwealth that became a formalized nation in 1948. So it took them four years to, to get a law in the books. So as you can see, uh, it a lot of times it takes a lot. Yes, sir. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. I was ask Zach, do you think that this one is such a... Uh a touching one because of our own our own history. Very much so. To me that like <laughs> our own history and our own American Civil War has colored this and, and, and has not allowed and, and, and this seems to be like a pretty big stumbling block for people to kind of accept. You know. Absolutely, because of that. Right. This is what we think of when we think of slavery, and and this is this is awful. This is degrading to humanity. This is this right here is what we think of when we think of slavery. But, unfortunately, this is not always the case that we get from the ancient Near East. And something we have to understand is, I personally think that slavery is awful as well. But the thing is, is that you have to, uh, you have to understand a lot of times it takes a long time for culture to change before culture starts to realize, man, this is not a, a good thing. For example, 
Most, most countries around the world, whether it's Britain or France or Spain or Japan or China or Korea or, you know, Egypt or countries in Africa, it takes a long time in general um, to, to abolish slavery. This is just, you know, a historical point that a lot of times first what they would do is they would regulate the slave trade. And then after that, they would ban the slave trade, but let you to legally be able to own slaves. And then finally, they would abolish slavery together. It's, I can't think of any nation off the top of my head that just outright bans slavery um, from day one. Typically, there's an evolution in that process as culture itself begins to change. Um, and like I said, some nations don't even abolish slavery until the 18th century. And then the majority of nations, especially those in Europe, developed nations, don't abolish slavery until the 19th century. And so, like I said, the, the United Nations Article 4 on the Declaration of Human Rights does not ban worldwide slavery until 1948. So it took us until 1948 to realize that worldwide that, well, slavery is probably not a very good thing for us to be doing. Like I said, you know, this may be this may be offensive to us in the 21st century. But you have to realize this that if you go with an early date for the canon of the Old Testament, this is 2100 years after the Bible was written. And if you go with an old date, if you're going to say uh if you're going to look at around 1700 BC for the date of uh the the Pentateuch being written by by Moses, this could be 3100 years after the Bible was written. And so what we're doing is we're taking our 21st century expectations of culture and reversing it back three millennia. That's the thing. That's something we may need to consider here is that, yeah, we don't like slavery today. We think it's offensive. But it took us 3,000 years to get to that point. And so it's kind of a little bit anachronistic for us to expect, you know, that there wouldn't be any slavery. This is something to consider. I'm not, you know, I'm not even addressing if it's a moral or, you know, it's a good or bad thing. But just from a historical view, it took us 3,000 years to figure out that slavery is something we shouldn't be doing. Um, so that being said, you know, slavery is regulated in the, in the Bible. But as I said before, there's a difference between regulating and condoning something. For example, Jesus regulates marital faithfulness and divorce in Matthew 19, 3 through 10. But yet he notes that the situation is not as God has designed to it. He says that men and women are designed to be one flesh and that they should not divorce. And yet he allows for divorce to happen. Polygamy is also the same. You see, this is God's way of saying, you know, my, my initial design, my, the thing I want is for man and woman to be married together for life. But I understand that, that because of difficulties and challenges that sometimes I have to permissively allow you to have the freedom to make choices. And so slavery is, is going to fall into the same kind of thing. You know, often, oftentimes, you know, permissive regulations are a concession due to the sinfulness of the people involved. That's what Jesus says about divorce. And, you know, that might be offensive to some of us as well today as we think about divorce. Jesus says the reason divorce occurs is because of the hardness of our heart. Because we're not willing to, to forgive someone. And so, you know, God will allow practices to happen under regulated, freedom, uh, regulated conditions because he's a willing to allow freedom. But here's something that is important that you should note. There's nowhere in Scripture where the Bible says slavery is good. It, it doesn't exist. 
There, there is not a single place in, in Old or New Testament where God says it is good to enslave other people. In fact, we're going to see the, the difference. I'm going to skip over this. You can see it in your notes. Um, theology. In fact, really, slavery is antithetical to everything we know about about humanity, about the dignity of human beings. God's very first command to the children in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 says that we're to prosper, that we should have dominion over the earth, that we should be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over, over the creation. And man is supposed to be over all creation and we're supposed to rule over the creation but not necessarily each other. See, the Bible says that mankind was made in the image of God and there's no other creature that this described this way. So from God's perspective, we're called to rule, but not over other people. That's just a very simple biblical theology. That we're called to have dignity. That we're called to be co-regents of the world and not be ruling over each other. And so all the stuff that we see, you know, class struggles and murder and selfishness, power plays, you know, even slavery here, it's a result of something that entered the world after sin entered the world and corrupted man. Because, again, Bible, the slavery is antithetical to who we are in the eyes of God. And so theologically speaking, there's no reason we should be having slavery. Um, just a, a few other things, and I'll go through these real fast because we got to fly. Uh, this, is, this is all from Scripture. Galatians 3.28 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female for all are one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11 says there's a, this is a renewal. It's talking about salvation and our unity in Christ. He says there's a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew. No distinction between circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free man, but Christ is all and in all. So these are saying from God's perspective, there shouldn't be any slavery. We're all loved by God. And, and we saw theologically there's no reason we should be having slavery from God's perspective. In Psalm 145, Matthew 10, it says that God loves and cares for all people. It says that God loves those who are oppressed and poor, including slaves. See this from Deuteronomy 24, 1 Samuel 2. There's a lot of verses. Like I said, you can look at those in your notes. And the Bible even says that those who show contempt for the poor, of which slaves would be, uh, that if you show contempt for them, that you're showing contempt for God who made them. This is an interesting perspective biblically. We see from Paul, the book of Philemon exists because of the issue of slavery. In the book of Philemon, Paul is actually writing to Philemon to free an escaped slave called Onesimus. Onesimus had basically uh, broken out of uh, of Philemon's house, had taken some of his property and was a runaway slave. He met Paul, uh, became a believer, and and then uh, he actually became quite involved in the church, I think in Ephesus. I I don't remember what church it was in. I think it's in Ephesus. Um, And so we get the book of Philemon because of slavery. In Philemon 1, 1, 12 through 16, Paul is going to ask Philemon to to free Onesimus of your own free will, and that Onesimus was to be considered no longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. And according to church tradition, Philemon ended up forgiving and freeing Philemon, uh, uh, Onesimus, and they went on to become saints in their town, and Onesimus, the slave, became the bishop of their church. Uh, and the, the bishop was the person of prominence. And so from an, a New Testament perspective, uh, the, Paul, Paul is looking toward 
that, that, that there should be freedom for slaves. And something that's important to note is that passages like these have been an inspiration for abolitionism throughout history. So people have actually used the Bible to say, hey, not only should we avoid slavery, but we should actually be freeing slaves. And this is something that we kind of start to see is that, you know, yes, there is permission for slavery in the Old Testament, but towards the New Testament, we start to see that the culture of, of the body of Christ is already moving toward being toward freedom of men and women toward one another and freedom toward slavery, the issue of slavery. Um, so this raises the question, okay, well, what was slavery? Because we need to define what slavery was like. Because, again, this is what we think of when we think of slavery. We think of all of the horrible things that happened in America and, and really from the, really in through, uh, you know, Europe and through South America and Africa from the 16th through 19th centuries. Um, like in Rome, slavery in Israel was different um, in that um, slavery in the ancient world was often a temporary financial agreement. For the most part, slavery was actually debt slavery. Like, it's pretty much the equivalent of having a credit card today. I mean, basically, if you're poor and you're out of money, then you sell yourself as a slave and you work for the person that owns you until you pay off your debt. So, and and this is a this is a really important point, guys. That it's a lo- and most of the time, the vast majority of the time, it is a voluntary decision. I'm, I'm too poor, I can't pay off my debt, so I am voluntarily selling myself to you. I'm going to work as your, as your farmhand until I pay off my debt and then we're free. And that's the difference. This is not, we're going to go, we're going to raid this tribal village in Africa, we're going to take their captives, and then we're going to sell them off to another, another colony where we're, we're working at, because, you know, we need to make cotton in order to make the economy thrive. There's a difference. Now, granted, yes, the, uh, and I will address captives um, outside. Uh, yes, captives taken during war, slavery was sometimes involuntary. Uh, captive, captives taken in war is the only exception to that rule. But the vast majority of slavery that we're looking at, a solid 70 80 to 80% of slavery is actually voluntary debt slavery. And the rest is, is going to be captives of war, which we'll look at in just a minute. Um, I'm going to skip that. It's a really good phrase. You can check it out in your notes. Um, here's a couple of things that are really interesting, too. This is from, from the Bible. Uh, this is uh, what slavery was like for Hebrew slaves. First, um, an Israelite slave was to be freed after six years of work. That's from Deuteronomy 15.12. This is legal genre literature, by the way. So this is legally binding. Uh, the legally binding legal part of the Old Testament. Second, um, there's a year of Jubilee. Uh, scholars are unsure if it's every 49 years or every 50 years, but every 49 to 50 years, all slaves were to be freed regardless of nationality and even if owned by foreigners. So if I'm a, you know, if I'm a, a Persian that's living in Israel and I own slaves, every 49 to 50 years, I have to legally free my slaves. It's called the year of Jubilee. This is actually influential of a lot of black spiritual songs we see in America in the 18th and 19th century. They're saying this is the year of Jubilee. A lot of times they're singing songs about the Old Testament because they're anticipating their manumission, their freedom. Um, At that point, once a a slave was freed, they would become a full member of society. They would be given livestock, they'd be given grain, and they would be given wine, and they would be given a little bit of money as as a thank you gift 
uh, after being slain. And again, this isn't legal. This is legal. This is something commanded. Um, owners were not to charge Hebrew slaves interest on outstanding debt. Once once your debt's paid, there's there's no more. There's no interest. And so. It's not like in India today where, you know, okay, uh, I'm, you're going to have a $100 loan so my daughter can get married, but I'm going to have, you know, 200% interest so that basically it's going to be financially impossible for you to not ever not be my slave. That's happening in India right now in some por- in portions in, in South Asia, you know, where, okay, well, I'm not legally allowed to have you be my slave, so I'm going to financially make it so that you can, I can, you know, that I can own you forever. That this is not happening in the Bible, because it says that Hebrew slaves you don't even charge them interest. So you let them work for six years and then they're free. It's an interesting perspective. That's not 18th, 19th century slavery. From um, criminals who owed restitution to a victim. If I rape someone, if I get in a fight and I beat someone up and I cripple or maim someone, you know, if I if their cow wanders onto my field and then it dies and I have to pay somebody, if I can't afford to pay the court, then uh, I can sell myself as a slave to repay that debt. That's what uh, Exodus 22 allows for. Um, slaves could voluntarily choose to stay with their master um, permanently. Um, they have the process of it's the ear piercing. They would put their ear up against the door frame of, of the house and they would tap a little nail in, in their ear and that was your, your way of saying that I, I'm going to permanently become a part of your household. It's, it's you know, kind of interesting, like you're nailing yourself into the house. Uh, it's basically a physical sign of saying I, I want to become a member of your household. And after that point, uh, a slave that becomes that part of the household, you basically invite into the family and you're paid a salary and the whole thing. Um, if a Hebrew sold himself to a foreigner... Um, he reserved the right to purchase his freedom at any point. Um, and he would still be treated like a hired man rather than as a slave. This is definitely in contrast to European slavery where it was involuntary. And here's something also very significant. Kidnapping was illegal in the Bible and was punishable by death. So this is not, oh, let's go on a raiding party for slaves. We're going to get a bunch of slaves by kidnapping them. No. If you kidnap anybody in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a crime punishable by death. So, like I said, ancient slavery and, and what it became in, in Europe and, and uh, various parts of the world in the 16th and 19th centuries is very different. It's kind of ironic that it actually got worse as time went on. Yes, sir? I'm sorry? Uh, when they were slaves to Egypt? Um, well, the, the text says that, um, you know, they were already in the land because uh, Joseph brought them in during the famine thing, and so they were already in Egypt. And then it says that the Pharaoh did not know Joseph. He did not remember Joseph. And so, you know, Pharaoh, because he's basically considered a living God, he was allowed to enslave the peoples that were underneath him. He He's an absolute monarch. And so... Um, so, you know, when they're in Egypt, they are in Egypt. They're not necessarily captives of war, but they're just a segment of the population. Sort of like in, you know, Nazi Germany, they're saying, okay, these people are lesser than our Egyptian people, and we're going to take them as our slaves. So That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be voluntary. That wouldn't be exactly. Oh, so are you worried about the chronology here? How does that fit with what we're reading? Well, it seems like we're talking about um, slavery as a voluntary thing. Right. Or, and, or as captives of war. Oh, sure. 
Sure. Uh, the reason, the, the, the thing you might want to realize here is that this is actually written after uh, the slavery in Egypt. This is, um, this is going to be the law that's given to Moses. Uh, so all of this legal literature is actually happening once, uh, once they leave Egypt. Does that answer your question? A little bit? Yeah, it's a situation that is different. And, so, and, and really, a lot of times, the reason why we have all these laws is because of what happened in Egypt. You know, God's saying, I don't want you to, to treat each other the way that you were treated in Egypt. So this is a lot in response to. Um, God reminds Israel. Oh, yeah, there you go. God reminds Israel to remember that there are once slaves in Egypt. And that that's why that they should be freed on the seventh year in the year of Jubilee. So, yeah, that's actually the point. Um, and owners are not commanded to treat Hebrew slaves severely. So you really can't, you know, you can't even really hit your slaves too much. Um, slaves who sold themselves into service were to be viewed as hired workers and not as slaves. Now, here is a different issue. So that's what we're supposed to be like when we, how we're supposed to treat um, Hebrew slaves. But what do we do with foreign slaves? It's a little bit different. Um, unlike Hebrew slaves, foreign slaves could be kept beyond six years and actually bequeathed as property. Um, but they were still protected from unfair treatment. So the thing is, that really the big difference is, is the amount of time you could be a slave. Um, foreigners were allowed to be kept for a long time as slaves uh, beyond six years. The interesting thing, though, um, all of the rules, at the, all of the legal laws are going to apply to all slaves, whether they're Hebrew or, or foreign. So you still can't abuse your slaves. Um, like I said, the only big difference is, is going to be interest on debt. Foreigners, they're actually allowed to charge interest on debt, and they're allowed to keep them longer than six years. That's going to be the big difference. Um, you see that here. Um, and this, this is interesting too. The conditions for the year of Jubilee, so this is the every 49 or 50 years, it says that that would apply to all who inhabit the land. And this seems to imply that all slaves are going to be freed every 50 years. So that means that if you're a Hebrew slave, you're going to be freed after six years of work. And even if you're a foreigner, every 50 years, you're, you're going to be freed as well. So now that you know, might be a little bit offensive because, yeah, they're kind of, you know, having long-term slaves for their foreigners. But the thing is, is that you might luck out. Like, if somebody buys you as a slave and it's year 49, then the next year you're freed. So, um, (laughs) yeah. Uh, It's funny. You you look at the literature, too. It actually says, don't be angry when you have to give them over. They're like, you know, literally, there's there's places in there where they're like, don't be mad because, you know, in two years you got to free them. Um, don't you know they're 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 pretty smart. Like, they're, they know these legal laws. They're going to try to find loopholes, and it doesn't give them a loophole for that. Um, here's something interesting too. Exodus twenty three nine makes it very clear that foreigners were not to be viewed or treated as inferiors, and that's a big issue. I know that legally you can have them longer, you can bequeath them as property, but they're supposed to be treated just like foreign guests. Um, and they're supposed to be loved as fellow Israelites. We see that from Leviticus 19. These are all in your notes. Um, here's a couple of things, too. This is the laws for treatment of all slaves. Forcing slaves to work on the Sabbath was illegal. You can't make them work on Saturday. You, you cannot at all do that. Um, the law commanded people not to return slaves. This is interesting. The law commanded people not to return escaped slaves. So if a, a, a slave escapes his owner then goes to a, a different town, then you're not going to return them. This is interesting. 
I mean, this is very different than the fugitive slave laws. I mean, George Washington was one of the first people to write into action the fugitive slave laws we have here in the United States. And so, uh, it's just interesting that slavery became something very different than biblical slavery. Um, The law prohibited anyone to slander slaves. So you can't even talk bad about them behind their back. Owners were to allow all slaves in their household to celebrate feasts with them. So it's time for the Feast of Weeks and you're going to have your, your fatted calf and you're going to pull out some wine and you're going to have some, some fun time together. You, you call in the slaves and, and you're going to celebrate as a, as a household. Um, obtaining now this is some other things that are a little bit tougher um, obtaining slaves through warfare was considered legitimate um, but not through kidnapping again the, the punishment for kidnapping is death if you kidnap slaves or you kidnap anyone that's, a, that's punishable by death um, obtaining slaves through warfare was considered uh, legitimate and uh, you just have to understand that's a very common practice throughout the, the ancient Near East really that's common all the way up until you could technically, looking at how you view conscription of troops or the draft, you could really say we're doing that today, in a way. I mean, you know, <laughs> technically, if we got in a war with China and Obama wanted us to get drafted, you could kind of consider it sort of the same principle as happening today. Um, so, like I said, captives of war may not be the best thing ever, but it's super common in every culture in the ancient Near East, and even it's common... It's still happening up until like the 18th century. Um, the law in the Old Testament forbade people to kill slaves. And if they did anything to permanently injure them, like injuring their eye, like if you hit them in the eye and, and they're, they're blinded or even hurt in their eye, or if you knock out a tooth, then the slave would be immediately freed for it. Just immediately on the spot. Um, if an owner beat his slave and the slave died, he would be considered guilty of murder. I'm going to explain that text in just a little bit um, as well. If the slave recovered, the owner would not be punished um, because the slave was viewed as his property. Hence, the owner's loss of labor and profit was his own loss. But remember, as we saw earlier, you're not supposed to... Well, the, I, I, this is a point. You know, okay, what do we do with Exodus 21 here? It says, hey, if you hit a slave... And he doesn't die, then it's okay. But if he does die, then you're going to be guilty of murder. You're like, well, how does that work? Because we saw earlier, I don't remember what slide it's on, but you're not allowed to treat your slaves harshly. Well, how does that work, right? Well, the thing is, is that this is this is um, this is in a section of the law that's talking about and defining uh, crimes of violence. And so, again, it's not a prescriptive command; it's a it's a permissive regulation. So, basically, what this law is saying, it's not saying, "Hey, this is how you go and hit on your slaves." This is saying, "Okay, in this circumstances, this is murder. This is not murder." So, that's the difference. It's not again; it's not a command to beat your slaves, but what it is is it's a legal way of defining defining what murder is versus what murder is not. And so that's, I think it's a very important description. And remember, we see elsewhere from the Bible that we're not supposed to treat our slaves harshly, which beating your slaves is going to be that easily. So basically, you know, it's like double layers to the onion. If you hit your slaves, you're in violation of the, of the biblical law. And then, and then if you beat them to the point where they die, you're guilty of murder. So... You know, like I said, that's not an, an allowance for slave abuse, but it, it's just a definition of what law is, uh, or of, of what murder is. Um, and like I said, Israel is commanded not to mistreat their slaves. Period. You're not you're not supposed to beat them, hit them. If you do, you're you're breaking the law. Um, so, like I said, it's a legal criteria for murder. Female slaves. This is an interesting issue too. Um, <clears throat> 
In practice, female slaves could be sold as concubines and they would be considered as secondary wives. Um, this is very common throughout the ancient Near East too. If uh, I'm a man and I want to get a wife for my or I want to get a wife for my son, then I could go and buy uh, a woman slave and she would become my son's wife. Um, <laughs> it's kind of offensive today because you know we're all about romance and love, but legal from a legal perspective, it's actually pretty much equivalent to an arranged marriage. Uh, pretty much from a, an, an Old Testament legal basis. I mean, it's pretty much an arranged marriage. Um, people, and the thing is, is that the women that are sold as concubines, they're going to have eagle legal status as free married women. So they're going to be, they're going to have the same protections. These legal protections are going to guarantee that they're going to get food, shelter, and conjugal rights. So legally from the Old Testament, you know, you have to have sex with your wife. You can't deny her sexual access uh, because, like I said, they want to make sure that these women are not being treated in a, in a secondary way compared to a normal woman uh, or a, 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 a wife. Uh, we see that in Deuteronomy 21. They guaranteed the right to be redeemed by someone else. The concept of redemption in the Old Testament, um, basically if, um, if there was somebody that was poor and on the verge of, uh, of being... Um, like destitute, or if there was someone that was a slave, you could purchase them, and you're basically taking them into your household, and they're becoming a part of your family. The story of Ruth is actually comes from this. Uh, it's sort of like the Old Testament way that, um, uh, oh, what's what's the word um, when the government gives money to people that are poor? Um, what's that? Welfare. Yeah, welfare. This is the this is the Old Testament equivalent of welfare. Welfare. Um, and like I said, these are going to guarantee legal protection from abuse or being sold to foreigners because they know that a lot of times their pagan neighbors are not going to be quite as nice. Um, if concubines were abused or neglected in any way, they would be freed without having to pay for their freedom. If you mistreat your female slave, she is freed. Um, since they were then married to their master, concubines could not be freed after the six years under normal manumission laws. Just because, like I said, this is like a, okay, well, you're going to be married for five or six years and then you're freed. Um, so they are going to, they're going to be, um, you know, they are going to be with their husband for, you know, for life, ideally. Um, but if there was an unmarried female slave, then she would be freed normally under normal um, the you know the laws that we saw about every every six years or every forty nine or fifteen years. Um, if a husband divorces his wife that he purchased as a concubine, then she becomes free. Uh, so if he doesn't like her or if he mistreats her or anything, she's free. She's out, no problem. Um, and if she was neglected, they would automatically be freed as well. And neglect is actually very broad. Neglect could be like if uh, if he's physically abusive, um, if he doesn't give her as much food, if he doesn't even have sex with her, then all of those would actually be legal criteria for divorce. Uh, this is very interesting. Um, actually, a lot of people, a lot of modern day scholars think that when Jesus is talking about divorce, he's actually talking about some of the same principles. There's a, a growing number of evangelicals and Jewish scholars that are starting to think that the rules for divorce are actually quite broader than we think that they are in the New Testament other than just infidelity. Um, in, in the Old Testament, you know, if, if, you know, if she cooks your food wrong, you could divorce her. <laughs> uh, you know, if she burns your food, if, if you hit her, if she hits you, if you don't have, if, you know, if she's not having enough sex, if he's not having enough sex, you could divorce each other in the Old Testament. Uh, 
So and, and so th- these concubine rules are going to be the same way. Like literally, you know, if he, you know, if if she if the, if the slave burns his food, he can divorce her and then she become free. So um, that's interesting. Captives of war. This is kind of the ugly side. Um, captives of war apparently are going to become slaves. And the, the men that go into battle could choose to marry their female captives. Mosaic law uh, provides for the protection of these women, though. Remember, if you do take a foreign woman as a captive, you know, you have to... All the things we've talked about, you ha- she's going to be protected, even if she would be seen as the lowest class of society because she's a foreigner. Um, captain wo- captive women were given a month to mourn their families and adjust to their new home before marrying. And this is rough. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to acknowledge this is pretty tough. Like watching your family get killed and then you get sold off as a slave to a foreign nation. That's pretty rough. I'm not going to lie. But remember, you know, this is three to four thousand years ago, and so the captives of war thing is, you know, it's going to take a long time for nations to get this thing figured out. And then, you know, honestly, too, I guess you can kind of look a little bit positively about this. I mean, if if we go to war and your husband dies, you're left. You know, in this culture, if you don't have a husband, you're on your own. And so, really, there's a some degree of mercy in this that, uh, you know, if, if you're a woman and you're a captive of another nation of Israel, the Israel, demand, Israel legal law demands that you're going to be fed, well-kept, that you can't be abused, and that you have to be fed, and that, that, that you have the right to have sex with your husband. He can't deny, he can't treat you as a, second, you know, as a, as a secondary wife. He has to treat you right. And, and so this is, like I said, this is almost like welfare to women who you know, are now um, having to come in. Like I said, it's not perfect, but it's a lot better than a lot of the other cultures. Um, if divorced or free to me immediately, um, a lot of times it is closely related to polygamy. A lot of times somebody will have a wife and then he'll go buy a couple of extra slaves. Solomon had like 400 concubines. Um, and like I said, we're going to talk about polygamy later. Um, I guess so we got to remember that, you know, this may be offensive to us from our 21st century perspective. Remember that this is, that these sensibilities have developed over 4,000 years of watching the abuse and the things that other nations have done to, to people over a 4,000 year period. And so, like I said, you know, there's quite a few legal protections for slaves in the Bible. Um, well, so what does this teach me about God? It teaches that God allows human freedom in, regard, in, in this regard, and it reveals His love for our free will. God, you know, from a biblical perspective, as we looked at it in the New Testament, you know, God, God respects our, and, and cares for our, our humanity and our dignity. Um, it shows that God demands ethical treatment of slaves. God demands ethical treatment of slaves. And it reveals He has a concern for the oppressed and poor. Um, it shows that God demands their freedom after a period of time of work and reveals that his belief in their intrinsic value and freedom. Uh, that's really very true throughout Scripture. Um, and it shows that slaves and free men were to be treated as equals and allowed into Jewish rites and festivals. This reveals that, you know what, God loves all people, and he respects our fundamental dignity of being made in his image. And so, what, what should we do in light of this? Well, we need to trust in the Lord. Uh, you know, even if we don't immediately understand why he allows oppression like this, we've got to trust in the Lord. Um, and realize that, you know, these these laws exist. Basically, these laws exist so that slaves will be treated as best as they can. And remember, this is a permissive regulation. The process of slavery itself is permissive. And so God's basically saying, okay, if you're going to do this, 
this is how you're going to have to treat. If you're going to do slavery, this is what I demand of you if you're going to, if you're going to have slaves. I want you to treat them right. I, you can't abuse them. You can't, you, you can't treat them as inferior. You've got to treat them as, as human beings. Um, and, you know, in light of that, don't, don't mistreat each other, you know. This is how we get the golden rule, you know, that we shouldn't be mistreating one another, but we should see everyone else as our equal regardless um, of our social status. A couple of resources that you can look at, rationalchristianity.net. That is uh, William Lane Craig's website, solid apologist. He will do a lot better job even than I can. Um, ChristianThinkTank.com talks about slavery. That's a, also a good way link. And then uh, CCM links. Um, that's uh, Equip.com. It's an apologetics website for slavery. All right. Questions? I'm going to have to dodge your bullets now. Any questions? Wow. Okay. You know, sla- uh, slavery stinks. Well, I just, it is, it's, it's really challenging to, uh, to go through these item by item. And keep in mind, you know, some of the things that you laid down at the beginning about the context and about the permissiveness. Um, and I, so I, I think it's a great thing to tackle, though, because even sitting in here already with the premise you've laid out over and over, I, ke- I keep having sort of gut-level reactions to how can you set up rules about something I don't want to exist? You know, but that's that's me and what I brought into the class. So. I just think it's good to, you know, to look at it in depth and challenge myself to look at it. Because I really want to run away from it. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. We hate slavery. We just think it's just absolutely appalling. you got to remember, it took us 4,000 years to get there. And, you know, even if God... There's places right now where human trafficking is... Oh, yeah. You're looking at southern uh, India. You know, that, it, 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 I hope it doesn't flip it, but there's probably people out there who wish their masters would throw a few of these rules in somewhere in the world. See, and that's the th- that's just kind of the hard thing to understand is you're like, okay, God doesn't like slavery, and God views me as a free, loved individual, and yet He's going to allow me to be a slave, and yet He's going to have all these rules of how I should be treated, treated, uh, treated, uh, treated fairly. That is tough. I'm like you, man. Like reading through, I'm like, man, if I just study a little harder, I'm going to find some passage in there where it says slavery is illegal. I just want to find it. And and unfortunately, you know, that's a tough thing we got to deal with with our, our with the word. I wonder if some of it has to do with you know the 21st century. Uh, we, we don't like to believe that there are there's an ordered class structure. We like to believe that there is this kind of equality of opportunity where I think you go back 4,000 years ago, there were certain, you know, lots in life that people understood that's where they were. Yeah. Uh, and there was this no, you know, there was this no social mobility. It's a very good point. Actually, it's a super good point. And here's something to consider, too. We're Americans. Our entire philosophical point of view is going to come from, I'm, I'm going to get a little... Get a little academic here. Um, everything we assume about us as Americans comes from John Locke, where John Locke said it's called social contract theory. I am a free person, and the government. I'm going to have this this bargain. I'm going to pay you taxes, but you've got to raise an army and keep me protected. And even now today, it's like, yeah, I'm going to pay you taxes, and if I get in debt and don't pay my stuff, you have to protect me. Uh, that's social contract theory. It's basically saying that our government has a contract to take care of us. and But that's very individualistic. 
Uh, our, everything we are as Americans say, we're all equal. We're all equal in the eyes of God. We're, we, I have my freedoms. Me, 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 me. And yet, that is 17th century political theory and on. And that is not everything before. And that's what you're pointing to. Social mobility isn't really happening until John Locke. And so... That's tough, you know. Before then, we still have kings. We have slaves. We have slave owners. You know, we have the state. Somebody else owns me, and I'm born into a poor family, and so my lot in life is to do the best job I can and, you know, hope to one day pay off my debts. Go ahead. I was gonna, the other thing I, was, I just thought about was that we're, we're offended by this, and we're free people, and we're free, and a lot of people see this and run the opposite direction. If you look at Chateau slavery in the 19th century, you know, in the South, Christianity flourished among among black slaves, and so it's kind of ironic that what cha- what, what chases many people away from God and, and, and Christ now is what turned many uh, enslaved blacks to to Christianity to Christ. I mean, think of all the slave songs and so the Antebellum South. It's kind of ironic. It's a great comment, and that's something I kind of alluded to earlier too. Why do we have so many black spirituals? You know, why are people, we have an entire generation of African-American slaves that are in the, you know, before the Civil War. They're singing songs about Christ returning because they're looking, they're, they're looking at the Old Testament. They're saying, hey, we want to be treated like, like we're supposed to be treated from the Old Testament. We're looking forward to Christ to return so there is going to be a day where we are going to be free. That's a great comment because they're looking to, they're looking to the Word because they see that there is hope for the slave. From in Christianity, there is hope, there is dignity, there is a God that loves me and respects the, my my dignity because I am made in the image of God. There's 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 a lot there, a lot of theology there. All right, well, hey, I've kept you for about half our time. Um, it's ten forty-five, so you're going to have a fifteen-minute break. In the meantime, I'm going to do something that's really dangerous and risky. I'm going to allow you. Uh oh. Uh, I'm going to allow you to do this. I have set up um, a poll online um, where I'm going to let you ask me a question, uh, any question that you want, uh, and I'm going to allow you to text this in, and I'm going to answer it right on the spot. Uh, you can ask me anything you want from the Old Testament. Something that you think a, you know, a non-Christian or a Christian friend comes up to you and you're just terrified that they're going to ask you this one question. You're going to ask me that question and I'm going to try to come up with an answer while you're taking a potty break. <laughs> so, uh, what you can do, this is kind of a neat website. It's called pollanywhere.com. What you can do uh, is you text in to this, so like instead of sending your text to Bill, you're going to send it to 37607. Then you type in this, and then you put a space, and then you type in your question. You can also tweet. Uh, just make sure there's a space in between at poll and the number. Or you can even get on your iPad, iPod, uh, iTouch, or laptop. Go to this site, um, and it will put you immediately to. And it will, in real time, pump up a question as... Travis did a few bits ago. He said, what about the flood? Why does God destroy everyone in the world to save a handful? Thanks. I appreciate that. So uh, anyway, y'all are released for a break. I'll give you about 15 minutes. Um, If you want to, text in, tweet in.